Strategic and International Studies. My name is Kimberly Flowers and I'm the Director of Global Food Security here at CSIS. Before we begin, just a brief safety announcement. We don't anticipate any issues, but if something comes up, I am your security officer and I will direct you towards the exits. Um, so today you're here for the launch of our great new report that really dives into um, mostly Mozambique and Malawi, looking at the crisis that's, that swept across Southern Africa due to the devastating drought of El Nino. Um, I won't go into the particulars about that because my colleague Richard Downey will do a deep dive presentation to teach you more about what's happened there. Um, many of you may have come to an event that we launched um, at the end of March of this year where we started looking at El Nino and that we've continued to track this issue, including taking a research trip to the countries that I mentioned. Part of the concept here was to examine how longer-term development initiatives like Feed the Future are helping vulnerable communities to withstand shocks. But we also wanted to look at and explore how USAID's focus on building resilience is working on the ground, particularly in light of such an extreme crisis. Many of you in this room have probably heard of the Global Food Security Act that was passed this summer. And it made it very clear that building resilience to food shocks to re reduce reliance on emergency food aid should be a top policy objective for the United States. And the U.S. Global Food Security Strategy that was submitted yesterday to Congress answered that call. The strategy recognizes the role of frequent and intense shocks and stresses that they have on food security, on nutrition, on poverty. And in fact, when you look at it, which I encourage you to, strengthening resilience amongst people and systems is now one of the top three policy objectives of the United States in terms of looking at food security. So alongside with agriculture-led economic growth and improved nutrition, resilience has now been elevated. And a solid strategy is very important. It's one step in the right direction, um, but ultimately it's words. It's about the implementation, it's about the coordination, it's about funding, it's about robust staff, and it's about having a flexible implementation on the ground to see how we can actually respond to crisis, which unfortunately has become the new norm. As we begin today, I just want to thank a few of my colleagues. Um, you will meet them later. Jennifer Cook, who's the, the director of our Africa program. Richard Downey, who's the deputy director of the Africa program. As well as Reed Hamill, a research fellow on our team, um, is the CSIS group that went to Mozambique and Malawi to do and conduct research for this paper. And Richard Downey, who you'll hear a full presentation from him. He's been a great colleague. He's a captivating writer, which you'll see when you read the report. And as you'll also see in a minute, he could have a career as a voiceover artist because he's also very good at creating a narrative for a film. And as we, as I introduce the film, I just want to recognize, I see him in the back, Sam Ellis, raise your hand. Sam is a multimedia producer here at CSIS with our Ideas Lab. He's worked with us on a number of our multimedia films that we've, multimedia products that we've produced. This is actually his last week at CSIS and also this is his last piece of art that he's helped produce here. And he's a great, uh, very talented young man with a promising career ahead of him. And we're just really grateful for you, Sam, and we'll miss you. Um, so to begin with the film, um, it's a short film. It's just a few minutes. But it really gives you a visual of their trip. It sort of lays the foundation for the dialogue and sort of sets the tone for our discussion today. Here in Southern Africa, the rains have failed for the second year in a row. The land is parched, crops have been decimated, livestock are dying, people are going hungry. 
It's a picture repeated across 10 countries in the region, where around 40 million people will likely need emergency assistance before the year is out. The cause? El Nino, a cyclical feature of our climate system that causes the Pacific Ocean to warm and triggers abnormal weather conditions across the world. The 2015-16 instalment was one of the strongest on record, and it's causing havoc in southern Africa. CSIS saw the impact for itself in June, during a visit to Mozambique and Malawi. As always, the poorest have been hardest hit, and there's particular concern for two especially vulnerable groups, children and people living with HIV. Both groups can get sick very quickly if they don't get enough food, and the right kind of food. Governments in the affected countries are struggling to cope with this crisis. The United States is helping, along with other donors, these communities in southern Mozambique receive vouchers they can exchange for food. These efforts have already saved lives. But support isn't reaching all those who need it. Humanitarian appeals are massively underfunded. Even those who receive assistance can barely sustain themselves because, as this woman explained, food prices are climbing reducing the value of their vouchers. And the worst is yet to come. Many of the hardest hit parts of southern Africa won't see another harvest until next spring, and that's assuming the weather cooperates. People in this part of Africa are used to coping with the tough conditions, but increasingly erratic weather patterns, exacerbated by climate change, are putting immense strain on households. Aid agencies are trying to build resilience among communities vulnerable to natural disasters and food shocks. Dorothy Namula and her family are among those to benefit from one such project, run by the US Agency for International Development in Malawi's Balaka district. Fides Kasamale is a nutrition assistant in USAID's Feed the Future project in Dorothy's district. He tries to get farmers to grow a more diverse array of crops. He says changing behavior takes time, but his efforts are starting to pay off. I expect this year we will have a lot of people growing different crops, like the soya, the groundnuts, maize of course, sorghum, and not only the crops, even uh, the keeping of uh, livestock uh, uh, in their homes. The aim is that families like Dorothy's will get the tools and know-how to grow a wider variety of crops and achieve higher yields. Not only will the food they produce offer a more diverse diet that keeps them healthy, it will provide a regular surplus that can be sold at the market. But it's hard work to sustain livelihoods in the face of these repeated shocks. Breaking the cycle of crisis will require governments in the region to prioritise policy reform to strengthen markets and incentivise change. Greg Collins helps countries build up their resilience capacities. And the great thing is we're starting to see good examples of country-led efforts that we can point to. So when I was in Malawi, a lot of what I talked to the government about was what Kenya had done, what Ethiopia has done, even what uh, the government of Niger is doing to own this risk and get ahead of recurrent crisis, to deal with it proactively. Positive change won't be easy and it won't come overnight, but it is possible with the commitment of host governments and the assistance of international partners like the United States, not only to meet today's crisis, but to prevent tomorrow's from occurring.
Hello, uh, everyone. I am the voice uh, from the video. <laughs> uh, which, as, uh, as Kimberly explained, was, uh, was shot in Mozambique and Malawi back in, uh, in June, as uh, this food crisis was just beginning to unfold. Um, and I want to thank, uh, echo the thanks that, that Kimberly's already uh, uh, made and, and thank Jennifer Kirk and, and Reid Hamill who uh, were part of this trip and, and conducted a lot of the research. Um, really our aim was to take a close look at the uh, impacts of the drought, uh, see how the response was taking shape um, and identify some of the main gaps uh, and challenges uh, of which there were many at, at least back in June. Um, and we were also interested to see how the two countries, uh, these two countries who've been long-term recipients of U.S. development assistance, uh, including significant investments in agriculture, um, continue to be stuck in this cycle of food uh, insecurity, partly due to uh, climate change. Uh, a number of questions came to mind as we embarked of, uh, upon the trip. Um, first, is this just a particularly uh, bad uh, year in which it's just that much harder to cope? Um, second, would food insecurity uh, be even worse in, in the region were it not for U.S. assistance? And third, are there opportunities being missed uh, to use development funds in a smarter way to build resilience of, of countries like Malawi and Mozambique? Well, I think the answer to uh, all three of those questions was, was yes. Um, regarding the first one, it is clear that for uh, many of the 13 countries uh, in uh, the Southern Africa develop compu uh, development community uh, region, this really is the worst drought in, in living memory. Um, El Nino caused the rains to fail uh, at critical moments in, in the growing cycle, uh, causing harvests to fail completely in some areas that we visited. Um, across the Southern Africa region, cereal production uh, has been down more than 10% on the previous year, and the previous year was a pretty bad year uh, for uh, many areas as well. And these cumulative crises have, have worn down the coping mechanisms of the poorest communities who are really now facing a battle for survival. Um, even in a good year, uh, these are countries where a large proportion of people are, are undernourished. Um, and you know, this year, families have, have, have really used up their coping strategies. Many have sold off livestock, uh, used up food reserves. They may have sent family members away uh, in an effort to stave off uh, hunger. Uh, one very common fallback strategy is to uh, seek casual employment, uh, often very uh, far from home in different countries sometimes. Um, but the depressed regional economy uh, has ruled that option out for a lot of people, and with harvests low and casual farm labor uh, also in decline, uh, that's also taken away an important source of, of labor. Um, even those who, who do have cash to spend are finding very, very high prices uh, for foodstuffs in the market, and those prices are continuing to rise because we're only just now entering the annual lean season. Uh, turning to the, the second question, would things have been worse without U.S. assistance? Well, that's a, a, a definite uh, yes. Uh, it's very clear to us on our, our visit that U.S. assistance to both uh, countries that we visited uh, has had a huge uh, in impact in saving lives already. Um, already more than $300 million has been uh, committed to this response across the region. I'm sure the number is still rising. The U.S. has been the most generous bilateral donor. Uh, much of the assistance has come in the form of, of cash or in-kind uh, donations to the World Food Programme, which has been a very, very critical uh, organization in taking the lead in procuring uh, and distributing uh, food or vouchers to communities. Uh, 
Uh, and the US isn't just giving food, it's a whole range of activities uh, from water and sanitation programs, uh, nutrition screening, uh, gathering and collecting important data on market trends and, and food prices, uh, distributing seed, uh, and setting up uh, food for assets programs whereby communities can receive food in return for working on projects that uh, maybe protect natural resources or increase agricultural production. Uh, now, in parallel with these uh, short-term efforts, the U.S. is engaged in longer-term efforts to increase food security in both Malawi and Mozambique. Uh, both countries are a part of the uh, President Obama's Feed the Future initiative, uh, which seeks to reduce hunger and stunting by addressing rural poverty, uh, boosting food production, and developing agricultural value chains. Um, and Malawi as well also gets development assistance from USAID's uh, food, for, uh, food for Peace program, uh, which supports the very, very poorest rural communities uh, and, and helps to increase uh, or improve uh, uh, health outcomes and improve hygiene. Uh, now this leads me on to the third question that I posed at the start. Are opportunities being missed uh, to build resilience among the most vulnerable communities? I think we, we saw very uh, good programs on the ground in both uh, countries, very hardworking and committed staff. Uh, but we also found uh, staff working uh, amidst some sort of uh, some policy straitjackets, I guess, uh, working in programs that weren't flexible enough to respond to the changing conditions that they encountered. Uh, the President's uh, Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, for example, is a huge presence uh, in Southern Africa. It is the source of assistance to many of the countries uh, in this region where one-third of, of people living with HIV live. Um, but even though the drought can have a particularly damaging health impact on, on this most vulnerable of communities, um, funding uh, restrictions on, on how PEPFAR money can be used mean that PEPFAR so far has only been able to play a bit part role in the drought uh, response. Uh, we also wondered whether Feed the Future could be more closely connected uh, to efforts to feed people now. Um, of course, that's not its primary job or objective, um, but of course its success also rides very much on a successful response to the near-term uh, relief effort. Uh, in Mozambique, the drought hit areas and the zones where Feed the Future worked were in different parts of the country. So this really limited uh, the, the ability of program uh, impl implementers to uh, shift their areas of operation even if they, they'd wanted to. Um, in some settings, I think there appears to be a, a sort of innate tension within Feed the Future between its, uh, its dual poverty reduction mandate and its market development uh, mandate. It, 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 strikes, it struck us that it was very hard to pursue both goals at the same time uh, in, in the same places. Now, we can talk at length about U.S. programs and U.S. responses, but ultimately, of course, the responsibility for managing and responding to food crises lies with the host nations themselves. Uh, and in both countries, uh, governments lack the capacity, and at times we thought that the political will to make tough policy decisions that would, for example, incentivize farmers, uh, open up markets to agricultural investment, and encourage the production of seeds and other important inputs. Uh, the U.S. has been playing an important diplomatic role in pushing, uh, uh, persuading host governments to take more proactive measures to prepare for food shocks rather than sort of starting each year from, from scratch. But despite these very vocal, important efforts, there's only been moderate uh, progress from what we saw. 
Of course, building the resilience of nations and communities and families to absorb the kinds of enormous shocks caused by uh, climate variability and climate change, it, it, these are very, very difficult tasks uh, to achieve, despite all the efforts uh, of development professionals. And the challenge is made uh, all the harder um, because for the very poorest people in Southern Africa, these shocks seem to be getting bigger uh, and more frequent by the year. Uh, this year, really, in the hardest hit areas that we saw in, in southern uh, Malawi and southern Mozambique, it's, it's really a, a matter of survival and not much more for the, 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 the most vulnerable communities. Um, in Malawi, at the, host, at the, the government level, um, the donors have uh, done a decent job, I think, in aligning around uh, messages about resilience. Uh, they've termed it as breaking the cycle of food security. Uh, in Malawi, and there's been some headway in sensitizing uh, the concept. Um, and of course, you know, while weak government capacity is an issue, there are other examples in Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, like in Kenya and Ethiopia, that do uh, offer some cause for optimism. Their governments have got serious about building national level capacities to adapt to and respond to drought. Um, in closing, I'm not going to rehash a lot of the recommendations in our report. You, you have copies, uh, hopefully, in front of you and can read them at your leisure. But uh, just to pick out a, a couple of near-term near and longer-term uh, recommendations. First, I think, in terms of the near-term response, raising the tempo of advocacy and diplomacy uh, in these months ahead will be really, uh, will continue to be very, very important in raising awareness of uh, and funds for a disaster that continues to get crowded out uh, by crises elsewhere in the, in the world. Uh, coordination is, is always a recommendation that features in so many of our reports, but I think it applies very strongly to uh, the response in Southern Africa right now, both among uh, external partners and the countries that are involved. Um, it's important to note that the US is playing the leading role in terms of the response already. I think in terms of uh, uh, attracting more resources to the, 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 the response, the US uh, role is to try and advocate for others to, to step up and, 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 and pay their share. Um, another short-term uh, issue is, is, is that livelihood recovery must take place in parallel to the relief effort so that we uh, you know, get into another crisis next year. You know, it's critical as uh, the planting season uh, gets underway uh, this month in, in many parts of the, the Southern Africa region to get, make sure that uh, communities have the seeds and the inputs that they, can, uh, they need to do the planting uh, for next year. Now, in terms of longer-term steps, I think more flexible programming uh, is going to be uh, very critical for, for the United States. And, and, and program designers should assume that drought uh, is now a matter of, uh, of, of life. Uh, uh, it's, it's a common thing that's during the course of an average three to five year uh, development program, you're going to see a, a drought uh, occurring on, in one of those years in Southern Africa. Uh, so building in sort of crisis modifiers, as has been described, that allow funds and programs to be repositioned uh, when emergencies strike uh, is very important. Uh, I think for initiatives like Feed the Future, uh, it's time to consider relaxing some of the strict targets uh, linked to activities in specific geographic zones and on specific chains. Uh, while these help to bring focus to the initiative, help to strengthen the case that its investments are having impact, they also uh, make the initiative a little bit more rigid than perhaps it, it should be. Uh, another longer-term uh, consideration is scaling up efforts to help countries uh, develop strong disaster risk 
reduction plans and, and institutions. This is a really neglected area of assistance to governments. Uh, less than half of 1% of glo the global aid budget goes towards uh, mitigating the impact of natural disasters, and, and yet those investments could save so much money in the long term and uh, human lives as well. Uh, and finally, I think it's, it's important as part of this conversation to talk about conditionality and, and whether it's time to start thinking about placing conditions on governments that do not take proactive measures to remove some of the roadblocks uh, to food security, such as policy barriers to investment, uh, or governments that don't uh, uh, make themselves more accountable. Of course, we all want development to be country-led, uh, 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 but the that's still a very distant prospect in a country like Malawi, where the US is actually committing more and more funding uh, by the year to emergency assistance. The trend's going in the wrong direction. Uh, and part of the reason, frankly, for this is that the government of uh, Malawi talks the language of ownership, uh, but isn't taking the tough decisions that uh, come with it. Uh, we need to get beyond this sort of annual ritual of issuing an emergency appeal. Uh, I think uh, one of the problems uh, is that U.S. funding for democracy and governance programs has uh, waned in recent years across Africa as a whole. Um, but the voices of civil society, of political parties, of the media, of parliaments are really, really needed more than ever right now in the midst of this crisis to keep the pressure on host governments to be accountable and, and to, to make some corrective uh, policy decisions. Uh, I will stop there. I uh, look forward to your comments and responses to the report. Um, but if you don't mind holding your questions for later on, I'd like to invite the uh, rest of our panelists to come and uh, join us on the platform. And uh, I'll hand over to Jennifer Cook, director of our, of our uh, Africa program, to introduce everyone uh, and, and continue with the event. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Um, uh, and thank you to Kimberly for um, in, in engaging the Africa program in this effort. This was a really um, exciting and kind of energizing uh, project. Um, while the, our report kind of looked at the connections between Feed the Future and emergency responses, how, you know, the, the trade-offs of whether to kind of preserve and insulate long-term development programs from kind of the short-term immediate pressures of, of crisis. Um, we have a panel today that will look a, a bit more in depth at, at the crisis response, both the scale of the crisis and the U.S. and international response. Uh, we were there in June, that was just a couple months after um, the harvest, uh, which in many places failed, in other places was very low. Um, and at, at this time, people are now moving into what even in a good year is called the hungry season, um, with very little assets uh, uh, on which to live. And so uh, the prediction then was that this was going to get much worse before it got better. And we have, um, uh, we have uh, a panel to discuss some of those uh, more recent uh, trend lines. We're delighted we have a great panel today. We have uh, David Harden, who is Assistant Administrator for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance. 
Obviously, this is enormous uh, portfolio. Um, most relevant, relevant to our discussions within that, it encompasses the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, uh, Food for Peace, and I think the Center um, uh, for Excellence on Democracy, Human Rights, and, and Governance to a certain extent. Um, in enormous demands on your office, uh, not a whole lot of bandwidth in the humanitarian space, um, so we'll be eager to hear how, how El Nino fits into that bigger picture as well. Uh, David has served in some very tough places, the West Bank and Gaza, Iraq, Libya, uh, but he has long time ties to the Southern African region, having served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Botswana at the start out of his career. So uh, it's great to have you working on this. Uh, next, via video, we have um, Ute Meyer. Uh, Ute, can you hear us and see us? Yes, I can. Okay, good fantastic. Afternoon or good evening to everybody. Okay. Um, Ute is the deputy country director for the World Food Program in Mozambique, where she really oversees pretty much the entire portfolio of WFP, from school feeding to resilience building to emergency to the voucher program and so forth. Um, we were impressed in uh, Mozambique. Uh, and Malawi by the very careful and thorough market analysis that World Food Program does before kind of uh, before launching into uh, some of its emergency assistance. Uh, Ms. Meyer also worked in Iraq. Uh, she's worked in uh, with World Food Program. She's worked in Rome and in partnership with UNESCO on uh, uh, focused on school feeding. Finally, we have our long-term friend and colleague, Anne Hollingsworth, who's senior, advocate for, uh, senior advisor for government affairs at Refugees International, which has been doing great work lately. She is formerly a senior analyst uh, with the International Crisis Group. Anne and her colleague, Alice Thomas, were in Zimbabwe about the same time that we were in Malawi and Mozambique looking at the situation there. Uh, they have a report, which I believe copies are outside, uh, called From Bad to Worse, uh, the Deepening Impacts of the Drought in Zimbabwe. So Anne, thanks so much, and it's great to get the broader regional look as well. I'm going to turn to David, and then we're going to uh, go through then to Ute and Anne, and we'll open up for questions. So, Richard, if the development thing doesn't work out, you need a job in Hollywood, I think you might be, you might be primed. Uh, for those of you who don't know in intimate detail the World Food Program, their operations on the ground are always quite extraordinary. So, Ute, uh, thanks for calling in from Mozambique. You, you by far have the kind of the coolest context in which uh, you're here. And, Anne, there are 65 million displaced people on Earth right now, it's the biggest since World War II, so you have a big job ahead of you as well. Uh, in 1966, that was, that was 50 years ago, Botswana was the 10th poorest country on Earth. They had practically no human capacity, uh, no institutions, no future. In the mid-80s, uh, where Dina Esposito, uh, our Food for Peace chief, um, she cut her teeth on the Ethiopian famine. 2.5 million people died uh, in Ethiopia. In Southern Africa, during the same time, uh, Botswana could barely hold on as they were struggling with drought. This year, we're not giving a dime to Botswana. 
they uh, can handle it. It's a shock, for sure. A drought, El Nino drought, is a political, economic, and social shock. It challenges the basics of society and it challenges the basics of the institutions. And yet, and yet we deem them capable enough to be able to withstand this shock. Right next door in Zimbabwe, where, where potentially the shock is even less than the semi-arid country of Botswana, we have a tremendous number of food insecure people. And as you talked about, both in Malawi and Mozambique, we've, uh, we're putting the bulk of our money and the bulk of our assistance into those countries. And the point being is that governance counts. Getting the institutions and the leadership and the governing structures right matters. Uh, and so, yeah, we have work to do in, uh, in Malawi, as your example. Um, so, so this is kind of the framework in which I wanted to, to set the challenge before us. Now, we've announced uh, $300 million. And of that, 123 million goes to uh, Malawi, and, and 32 million goes to Mozambique. And, and yet, we see, and the best example of kind of communicating with our colleagues in Southern Africa is what's happening in Kenya, or how Ethiopia is with able to stand that shock, even though they have some governance problems and, and, and democracy problems themselves. Uh, and, and the changes that uh, you see in South Africa, Zambia, Namibia, and, uh, and Botswana. Now, the other thing that's important is to put this in some kind of regional or global context. It's actually important that we get this right. I mean, it's important for the food uh, insecure people. It's important for the women and the children that you had in your film, Richard, uh, because that's just the basic morality of what we do. But it's also important for other reasons. You know, in South Africa, we have an example of post-conflict success. And as we look around the world, and we see the 65 million displaced people, and we see kind of the tragedy of Iraq and, and Syria and Yemen and South Sudan, one day those will be post-conflict societies. And being able to kind of emerge out of those post-conflict, uh, of those conflict situations with institutions that allow them to withstand shocks is going to be important and credible. And that's why not only getting this El Nino response right from a humanitarian perspective, but from a resilience and governing perspective is, is actually quite critical. It's quite critical for them, but it's quite critical for all of us as global actors. So I think I'll stop there and I'll turn it back to you, Jennifer. Okay, fantastic. Um, uh, Ute, uh, we'll turn to you now. Well, thank you very much. I hope you can all see and hear me all right. Um, and let me first thank you very much for allowing WFP to be a part of this panel. And uh, congratulations and thank you for organizing this. It's really very important. Uh, we were happy to host you uh, during your visit to Mozambique, but it's good to now see and be able to discuss the, out the outcome of your visit. 
Let me just uh, start by referring again, setting the stage a little bit and reminding us of what we are facing currently here in Southern Africa, in, in the region, but also in Mozambique. Uh, as, as Richard mentioned at the beginning, this is uh, the worst drought in uh, living memory induced by the most severe uh, El Nino event in a generation. Um, currently, about 40 million people are estimated to be food insecure in the Southern Africa region up to the beginning of the next harvest season. Uh, because of uh, this current drought situation. WFP estimates that in the seven priority countries where the situation is worse in the region, about 40% of the rural population are acutely food insecure. Uh, there is strong signs of rising malnutrition affecting particularly children uh, children under five, but also pregnant and lactating women. So we are seeing both severe acute malnutrition and also moderate acute malnutrition on the rise. Uh, it is also important to keep in mind that the Southern Africa region is one of the regions most affected by HIV and AIDS. And therefore, the uh, foods, food insecurity and the rising malnutrition is also very much affecting people living with HIV and TB. Uh, we know, for example, that increasing malnutrition may have effects on deepening HIV vulnerability because uh, when people are malnourished, the antiretroviral treatments uh, may not be working anymore. So this, this, uh, this crisis has many different dimensions. In Mozambique in particular, which of course I'm most familiar with, uh, we currently have uh, 1.4 million country in the region, in the country, acutely food insecure, particularly in the center and the south. We also have high uh, acute and severe malnutrition rates. We have just done a, a food security and nutrition assessment and, uh, for example, three out of 11 provinces that were surveyed have nutrition IPC phases in, uh, in phase three and four, which is quite drastic for those who are familiar with the IPC classification. But let me also say, uh, as Richard has also alluded, very much Mozambique is actually fa facing many shocks that compound the effects of the drought. So we have other stressors, everything is coming together. Uh, first of all, particularly in the south, this is not the first time that people go hungry. This is at least the second consecutive year of drought. Uh, in other parts of the country, people are still recovering from the severe flooding that we had uh, early last year. Uh, we are indeed going through uh, quite a significant economic crisis and we have a protracted political crisis. So we also have signs of displacement in the country, both internal displacement and external displacement. This is the current situation, but unfortunately, uh, before it may get better, maybe sometime next year, uh, the situation will first get much worse. In Mozambique, uh, FuseNet estimates that until December, we will have about 1.8 million people needing assistance, 
And the last government food security and nutrition assessment said 2.3 million people may become uh, food insecure from January until the next harvest season. Um, again, uh, malnutrition rates are also expected to increase in parallel. We have been very worried about uh, another upcoming uh, possible shock related to the rainy season, which is just starting. And uh, as uh, people familiar with the region know, we have quite a regular pattern of uh, rains and flooding, and particularly in Mozambique, where we get a lot of the big rivers and the water that even falls in some of the other countries. I might say maybe somewhat fortunately, the last uh, indications about the La Nina event say that there is less risk of a significant La Nina event. Therefore, for us in Mozambique, less risk of significant additional flooding. But we are still preparing ourselves for what I could call the, the regular pattern of uh, annual floods and cyclones. On the other hand, having less rain also poses a potential risk for the planting season, for the ability of people to plant, which is, of course, absolutely critical to foresee uh, a way out of this current drought and food security crisis. Along with uh, the need for rain, uh, and Richard has also alluded to that, we need seeds. This is another problem that we currently have. FAO has done a study and sh uh, has seen that, at least on the commercial sector, unfortunately, there's not enough seeds available. Uh, in the region overall, the crisis is deepening, and WFP foresees uh, that we have to reach about 13 million people in the region by January. Uh, there are also particular grave concerns for some countries, including, for example, Madagascar, which is not often talked about, but southern Madagascar again presents many combinations of different shocks along with being affected by the current drought. Let me just also briefly touch upon what uh, Richard has also mentioned, namely that unfortunately this current situation is not new for Mozambique and the region. It reveals a lot of underlying problems and structural challenges. First of all, climate change. Mozambique is one of the countries most affected by climate change. Um, this crisis is an early indication of the even greater food and nutrition shocks which climate change will bring over the next decades. So clearly climate change is uh, to be taken very seriously. But also, we can see that uh, some of the, our ability to respond to the drought and the effects of the drought reveal challenges in longer-term food and nutrition security and social safety nets programs. Um, we have uh, longer-term issues around strengthening food and nutrition security in the country. Um, many good initiatives are there, but clearly it is never enough. How does WFP respond? We respond through a combination of interventions. First of all, of course, we are very much concerned with meeting the immediate food and nutrition needs. Uh, in the region, WFP is trying to scale up currently to reach about 8 million people by October and more than 13 million by January. 
In Mozambique, we are currently implementing various programs, uh, food for assets, uh, which not only meets household food security needs, but also allows creating livelihoods assets. We are involved in uh, treatment for moderate acute malnutrition, and we have started emergency school feeding because the drought is also lead, uh, forcing more children to abandon school, which again in itself, as you can imagine, has many longer-term negative effects. WFP is actively involved in the coordination of the humanitarian response, both in-country and at regional level. And yes, we also uh, work together with partners and trying to build resilience and support food and nutrition security in the longer term. Um, we do this under the chapeau of the multi-sector El Nino Action Plan, which has been launched by the Southern Africa Regional Interagency Standing Committee, a long word. We use the acronym of RIASCO, uh, which also has the three pillars of relief, resilience building, and uh, assess, uh, mitigating the economic impacts of the drought. Uh, in Mozambique, I would also like to mention that we are working with the government on a longer on longer term food and nutrition security, helping the government to operationalize the sustainable development goal two, uh, just approved last year, which is of course the new policy and development framework for all food security, nutrition, agricultural hunger alleviation efforts. And I might say we are also working with PEPFAR in an important program. And let me just say here that maybe I would like to caution a little bit. Some of our experience with PEPFAR has been really quite positive. PEPFAR is one of the main donors for the Nutrition Rehabilitation Program, which is the government's continuing program to uh, treat moderate acute malnutrition. And uh, PEPFAR is doing very good work there. And so we're working together with USAID PEPFAR in this uh, context also. Just to close, uh, I hope I'm, I, need, I know I need to close. You're um, fine. Yep. What are some of the, the main challenges? Of course, number one challenge is always resourcing. We, we are grateful for the support received, including from the US government, but it is not enough, unfortunately. Uh, the region currently needs urgently almost $4 million to respond adequately to the needs until next April. And in Mozambique, we have a shortfall of about $24 million. Uh, but also, it is very important to raise and maintain awareness for the, ma for the magnitude and severity of this emergency. We know it's a challenge, but so again, really thank you to CSIS for taking this initiative and giving us this opportunity to do just that. So um, let me stop here and I'll be happy to add more information and local perspective in responding to any comments. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ita. that was great. Um, let's turn to Anne for the picture from Zimbabwe. Um, thank you so much. Thank you to CSIS for organizing today's panel. Um, as Jennifer mentioned, um, I was in Zimbabwe and South Africa with my colleague Alice Thomas uh, as we were looking at the El Nino impact and the drought response. 
We traveled to some of the hardest hit provinces in Zimbabwe, including Matabeleland North and Masvingo, while going to the capital Harare, and then on to South Africa to look at how Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe was fitting into the regional response. Um, before I dive in, for those of you not familiar with Refugees International, we advocate for life-saving assistance and protection for displaced people. We are an independent organization and do not accept any government or United Nations funding. So the challenge, and some of this has been covered already, that will sound a little familiar, but as far as the Zimbabwe case study, I think it's really important for us to look at in a place that's very prone to droughts, why is now different? Uh, there are several reasons why for the Zimbabwe context. First of all, two consecutive years of poor rains compounded by El Nino have resulted in the worst drought in 35 years. Impacts on agriculture, livestock, and food security have been severe. Maize production in Zimbabwe for 2015 to 2016 is 